Hey guys, welcome back to the Kind of an Expert podcast. I am your host, Corey Tyndall, as always. And this week, I sat down with one of my Clinton campaign co-workers, Erta. Um, she actually, well, so to begin, some of you don't know that in 2016, I was actually a regional organizer in the state of Ohio for the Clinton campaign. I was about four months, very intensive. Uh, there's, you know, a whole lot that goes into that. And uh, Erta was actually one of my co-workers on that. She came from England to work on the campaign for a couple months, ended up actually leaving early because she hated it so much. Um, and I don't blame her. It was pretty terrible. Um, but I wanted to talk to her about uh, the idea of socialism. Um, since she moved back to England, uh, when uh, when she left the, the campaign, she's been pretty active in the Socialist Party in London that she's in. Um, so I really wanted to get her thoughts less around like what socialism is and more about how she kind of thinks about socialism, um, how she kind of got to the conclusion that socialism is the way to go in terms of an economic system. I will say that Personally, I am not a socialist. If you would like to hear my economic views, uh, go listen to episode, I believe, 24 or 25 called The New Gilded Age, where I talk about uh, this concept that I'm calling pendulum economics, uh, where we essentially it boils down to my belief is that in certain times we need to enact more socialist policies. And then as those start to uh have downsides, which they inevitably will, we inevitably will, we need to swing back the other way towards more conservative policies. And it keeps swinging back and forth for the history of America. So this wasn't really made to try and change anyone's mind. It was really kind of supposed to be a way that you can get in the head of someone who believes in socialism and start to understand them. So I think you guys will enjoy it. Uh, Please like, subscribe, share with friends, and enjoy the episode. How long has it been since since we talked? Was the last time we kind of hung out when I was in England? Like beginning of 17 I 2017 think so. yeah that must be right yeah and then uh i got stranded at the uh heathrow airport that's for, right you missed your flight to norway <laughs> or your flight back no i missed my flight home uh because there was i didn't realize that you guys had three airports in london and it was a different i was flying back out of an a different airport than what i flew in at and when I checked the time for the airport, I thought it was just the time of the flight. It was like one minute difference. And I was like, oh, that's a weird typo. And so I went back to the airport I came in on and then waited around for a little bit and then decided to check in. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is not you can't get on this flight like this is the wrong place to be. And, yeah, uh, I've actually missed. done that before as well. I did it once in Sweden in Gothenburg and it didn't occur to me that there could be two airports but to be fair to me Gothenburg is a much smaller town than London um, so it's much more reasonable <laughs> to assume there would only be one airport 
Right. It's not that I only thought there was one. I thought there was two because I flew into one and then I flew to Norway with another one and came back. And I was like, well, there's no way there's three. Right. <laughs> and uh, I was wrong and it cost me twelve hundred extra dollars. Well, you live and you learn. Yeah. There's no, worse I'm, mistakes uh, that could have been made. That was that was exactly my thinking is like, wow, all right. So I'm definitely going to check every single boarding pass very closely now. And like, could you imagine if I was like 35 or 40 and had like an entire family with me that had to go through that? It's like, I just, just glad that it was myself, I guess. And then I just, you know, but now every time that I'm like a little short on money, I'm thinking like, oh, if I only had that $1,200, even though it would have been so far gone by now, there's no way I'd still have it. <laughs> Um, so that was, I guess for, uh, the audience's sake, um, so what, let's, let's go through the timeline of how we actually know each other. Cause it's, I think it's, it's interesting because I know some of the people listening know that I used to work on the, the Clinton campaign and then you came from, uh, England to also work on the campaign, right? Had you like just graduated university? I always forget why you picked to come to Ohio when you did. Yeah, so um, I went to university in Edinburgh in Scotland and then um, after I graduated I did a year working full-time for my students union um, as a sort of elected student union officer um, and then I, yeah, right when the campaign was starting in 2016, I found myself a bit at a loose end um, and, yeah, without a job um, and just got put in touch with someone and had an interview um, over Skype and I got on a plane and flew out the next day, um, picked up my parents' car and drove across the country. Um, it was a, it oh, was a strange yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, to say the least, that was uh, a strange time, I think, for everybody. So, yeah, we pretty much had kind of the same thing. It was like, oh, shit, I need a job. Um, all right, well, I guess I'll do that. Like, I also knew somebody who was working in a different part of the state. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, why not? We'll do that. And then um, I wish, like, when you were interviewing, did they tell you that it was going to be 110 hours a week? Cause they definitely I think didn't. I did. <laughs> And that was part of that either. That was part of the reason that I ended up uh, leaving the campaign early. I mean, I was never a big supporter of Hillary Clinton anyway. Um, right. I, at the time, I was I a wasn't supporter either. of Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and um, I actually I found the campaign a pretty demoralizing experience. Um, and I got oh offered my God. a job then yeah. back in London, um, and so I ended up leaving early um but and one of the reasons was just the absolutely inhumane working environment that it was um yeah like no we weren't told that we for three months we would not be allowed to have a single day off or i think it was that you would be allowed to have one day off um yeah. during that entire it was, time it was like Right. Like one day off and it was like, you better be back in the office by 8 a.m. the next day. So like your one day off is truly for sitting at home and doing nothing so that you don't blow your brains out. 
Yeah. And I just found that to be, um, you know, actually deeply sort of contradictory to the progressive values that we were supposed to be working for and towards. Um, yeah. But also, I just found the entire campaign to be extremely apolitical um, and not at all concerned <laughs> with really actually convincing people of any kind of politics, but really just, you know, recording data. Um, and I didn't feel really part of a political experience um and i mean my politics was always more left-wing than that anyway and since then has come much more to the left um and it's, it's partly why i've stayed in the uk and really built a political home for myself here as well yeah yeah no i definitely i definitely want to get into that but i think we could also like you know shed some light on what we mean by like working situation so it was like it was like 110 hours a week and they did kind of quote unquote like pay for us to live but it was really just like we were staying at a volunteers like i was in this old lady's like old computer room that she set up a bed in and that was like that was it and then i don't know if you actually heard this but one of the staffers in pennsylvania decided to sue the campaign because um with the amount of hours that we were working, we were being paid, but hourly it would have equated to like $4 an hour, which you still, even if someone's salary, you can't pay them under the federal minimum wage, which is only like $7 an hour. <laughs> so it's pretty pathetic as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, um, so I was told when I took the job that it would include housing, obviously, because you're expected to move to a completely different part of the country and, you know, only be there for three months. You're not expected to find your own housing. Um, but obviously I was coming over from the UK and um, it was a huge kind of culture and life shock for me anyway. Um, yeah. And I was told that there would be housing. And so I remember, you know, on the day before or a couple of days before I drove out um, ringing up our whatever our regional organizer or whatever that role is called um yeah 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 he and asking where should i go what's the address where i'll be staying and he yeah. was like well i don't know yet um and so i got in a car and drove for 12 hours without knowing if i'd have a place to stay <laughs> at the end of it and as it turns out i didn't um i spent the first right. few days couch surfing um and yeah. i mean I don't know, thinking back, maybe I should have been prepared for it, or in a sense, maybe if it was a cause that I was actually kind of more really invested in, then maybe I would have prepared, been more prepared to deal with those kinds of circumstances. Um, right. But I, I found it, you know, like just totally unacceptable from a personal support perspective. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty tough. Like, didn't you stay on his couch for a night or two like where did you even stay i stayed at the houses of different volunteers um but it wasn't like coordinated in any way so basically at the end of each day i'd kind of walk around the office and ask people where i could sleep um oh, <laughs> and usually end up on someone's couch <laughs> i'm kind of surprised you just didn't end up in the in your car for, for a night or yeah. two. Yeah, well, I was glad but, I at least had a car because that at least gives you a sort of yeah. base and a, a, a bit of a sense that you have some control over your life. 
yeah, that was uh, pretty poorly. I literally had the same thing, and that was like day number one or two. I kept uh, I kept going up to our regional organizing director, Christian, and just like because we did. You showed up, I think, like two weeks after I did, or three weeks, where like there was a big get together in Columbus, and then we got spread out. But while we were in Columbus, I think I asked him four or five times where I was staying, and he never knew, and he got so mad at me because I just wouldn't leave him alone. And then he kind of made me feel like I was crazy for wanting to know where I was going to be living for three months. Yeah. And every time I'd like think about it, I'd be like, wait, no, this is a completely reasonable ask. I have no idea where I'm going. And I still had to stay with some random person for like two days before I got put in uh, the uh, I, I lived with this old like former state senator for those three months. Oh, well, that's but quite then, interesting, at least. Yeah, it was it was fine. She kept like, I don't know, we were so busy and she kept I think she thought that I would be like hanging out and kind of being like a real roommate to her. Uh and like having someone to talk to but it was like you know when you're working 120 hours a week it was like oh i'm sorry i'm really sorry but i don't want to talk to anybody right now i just spent seven hours on the phone being yelled at by by local ohio people that have no no uh desire to speak to me no absolutely sounds familiar yeah and that was like what you said about the the political thing like it, it really wasn't that political it was around data because it was pretty much just a pyramid scheme right like we would just call people to get volunteers so that they could call more people to get volunteers so they could call more people and it was just like what's what's the end goal here we're not convincing anyone to vote for hillary we're just seeing who they're gonna vote for and then asking if they want to make some calls so it's like I like the only four days I think of that campaign that mattered were the last four and uh, that campaign really botched it. So I don't blame you for leaving is what I'm saying. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I look back and I think I made the right decision, but I think, you know, that way of working is inherent to um, the kind of machine politics that goes on in the US because the Democratic Party is not a party that's in any way actually based on the grassroots. Um, right. And, you know, I would say that it doesn't even represent the interests of working people. It is, despite the fact that it, um, you know, professes more liberal values and policy solutions, I think, you know, fundamentally it is still a party that. Um, essentially is completely tied to corporate interests um, and therefore it doesn't actually rely on any kind of real grassroots politics of convincing people of its ideas because it doesn't actually need those people for anything all it needs them for is to turn out and vote on election day Um, and the vast majority of that work is done through mass media outlets anyway um, and you know the debates and um, big money advertising and getting the message out there it doesn't actually need people to be organized at a local level and doing anything political and therefore it has no incentive um, to actually talk to people or organize people outside of election time 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the benefit that they have of just having so many wealthy donors, right? Like it's, it's kind of, they're in a situation where they just barely need some grassroots people to like remind people it's election day. But yeah, other than that, they're going to get most of their money from, I think Joe Biden got more money from wall street than Trump did in this election, which is exactly what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. So do you do you really think that there's any difference between kind of the Republican and Democratic party at their core in the United States? And I I understand you're you're in England now, so but you pay attention to this stuff pretty closely still, I think. Um like do you really think that they would flip sides or there's there's any real like uh core of people that actually want to help the lower class in the United States or it's just kind of like you know Bernie Sanders was kind of the only real person and even him to an extent I don't know what are your what are your thoughts on that well um clearly there is a difference between them um, because they have different policy proposals and I wouldn't want to imply that, you know, that it just literally doesn't matter whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump gets elected um, because clearly the level of brutality um, with which, for example, you know, anti-migrant um policies have been pursued over the course of this presidency, the particularly um, aggressive stance that's been pursued towards China and the trade war that's been pursued, um, the kind of virulent right populism that's encouraged um, the growth of the far right, and, you know, the attacks on the Black Lives Matter protesters, all of these things have... uh, been exacerbated by Donald Trump and to some extent certainly you know Joe Biden um, has a different more liberal base and therefore would take a more different um, more liberal approach to some of these things but what I would say is that I don't think that either of the two main parties and certainly not the Democrats um, none of that will be a solution to any of those problems. They can't offer anything that fundamentally solves those social problems because they're fundamentally committed um, to propping up a social system which is based on inequality and exploitation. Um, And that's where, you know, the point about the corporate interests comes in um, and the kind of electoralist bourgeois party that it is. And so I would say that in terms of its function and its structure um, and the interests it represents um i don't think that there is a fundamental difference between the democratic and the republican parties okay yeah that's that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense i think on a lot of levels um but you brought up necessarily or you brought up the idea of like corporate interests and this is kind of like coming up uh now where you see kind of these corporate billionaires starting to call for things like higher taxes or more regulation or something along those lines do you think that there's any kind of uh you know political interest for these corporations to kind of take a step back and move towards a more liberal democracy or or is it really just kind of like they're going to move a little bit and they're going to move just enough and then it's never actually going to be fixed. 
Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say it's the latter. I mean, one other thing I want to say is that actually I think, you know, for example, the failure of the Democratic Party to tackle um, the conditions of social inequality that arose out of the financial crisis in 2008 are a huge yeah. part of what actually created the conditions for the rise of Donald Trump. Um, it's that social dissatisfaction of the kind of middle, lower, uh, lower middle white working class, um, the sense that um, you know, people are being declassed, that people are losing the kind of social outcomes that were promised to them. Um, and then obviously, you know, the sense that no currently existing political organization actually offers solutions to that and that therefore the turn towards populism and kind of extremism and so on. Um, and I think that, yeah, that exposes the fact that actually um, the democratic alternative isn't really an alternative um, and that the only thing that could offer that alternative that could actually lead people out of those kind of um, extremist and reactionary conclusions about what is uh, causing all these, you know, social ills and so on is actually a party, a real working class party that can actually explain why these economic crises happen, um, explain that it's inherent to the kind of social system we live in um, and that it's capitalism and the drive towards profit that causes these things and that those are the things that need to be overcome in order to solve them. So how do you, how do you in the uh, in the greater sense, kind of start that movement towards uh, a political party that that does like how do you how do you explain that to the average voter? Because there's so much. I mean, America for the last hundred years has been uh, like pretty much built on the idea that that a working class system, namely communism or socialism, is the enemy of america and american ideals so how do you how do you go about changing people's minds around that idea because i i do agree with you on some level like i i do like obama i really wish that he went further and put the people that were running those banks in jail for ruining the economy and i think that's what's led to tech companies now doing the exact same thing because they know there's going to be no punishment but it's like i'm also like i actually pay attention to this stuff so like how do you when someone doesn't really pay attention, they just live their life until October 20th when suddenly the next two weeks are about politics. How do you kind of get it in their head? Like, hey, the system is against you right now. Like, this is a bigger project than what you think it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are any shortcuts. Um, what you need is patient and persistent organizing. Um, you can start doing that work in various ways. You can start doing it within community campaigns. You can start doing it within trade unions. Um, you can start doing it within um, left organizations like the DSA, for example, which are already debating a lot of these questions uh, themselves anyway. You know, the, the nature and character of the Democratic Party and um, support for Biden and, you know, potentially the need for a new working class party and and so on um so 
but you also need to give people a reason to get involved. Um, you need to create political structures um, which actually fight for working class interests um, rather than pursuing a strategy of compromise. And it's not going to start through a top-down you know, mass media campaign. It's going to start with people organizing themselves in the workplaces um, and in communities and actually you know, debating these ideas and coming to understand them and then building up that organization from the ground up. Gotcha. So I guess where do you see like the difference in what you're talking about compared to uh, like the Tea Party in 2008 through 2016, essentially getting getting Donald Trump elected? Because it feels like that's kind of what they did. Right. Or do you not know too much about like what happened with the Tea Party? Um, I mean, I, I remember it being in the news. Yeah. So it was kind of a, it was like a grassroots, like right wing movement as opposed to a grassroots left wing movement. Like, how do you kind of, how do you kind of steer people in the direction uh, of more of a left wing movement that's not built around like, you know, the idea of hating immigrants and the idea of, uh, you know, hands off government like let people do whatever they want to do because i mean we've seen a hundred times that that doesn't work so it's like how do you how do you kind of convince someone no no like organization is the way to go not more uh i i like i want to put freedom in quotes but we're on an audio medium so <laughs> it's like kind of hard hard to do um well i think the you have to just create ways of reaching people with explanations for the injustice and inequality in society, which are um, much more capable of coherently and systemically explaining um, those inequalities and um, show people that a movement of workers united um, is much more powerful to actually, um, you know, make gains in social conditions against the bosses um, than it is to be divided and blame each other. I mean, like I said, I don't think there is a shortcut. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So so let's let's kind of like walk this through. So let's say that um, the the movement kind of starts up like uh, workers are starting to feel that they should get more rights, which you are seeing with um, like uh, big tech workers with Amazon and Uber and some of these giant tech companies and Google are having issues with people trying to start unions. And I say issues in that they are issues for the company in the company's eyes. Um, so let so that's that's kind of started now. What like how do you I guess a, a better question is like how far does that go? Like in your mind. Um, where is kind of the sweet spot of a uh, corporate hierarchy or uh, social hierarchy, or is there no social hierarchy in, in what you're talking about? Um, can you rephrase the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, for instance, uh, 
CEO's pay right now is on average like 34, 35 times what their average worker is. And so when you've got that kind of wealth inequality, it a lot of people I think would agree like that's too great. Like no one person is that much more important than the rest of the people there. So one way to kind of combat that is through unions and being able to like broker with the company how much what that ratio should be so in your mind and and kind of like with this movement how far does the movement go there like is this more of just kind of is this like a democratic socialist idea that you're talking about where it's you know it's 20 times or 15 times for the ceo's pay are you kind of of the belief that uh like everyone should essentially be paid almost the same for the work that they do and then also how did how do you kind of come to that conclusion in your mind like what's your thought process around that uh well i think it's it's maybe useful to come back a little bit to a conversation about what kind of socialism actually is um and how i conceive of it um, yeah, and yeah. Then it, I, th- I think, I think that that's a will good kind idea. of follow <laughs> from that. Um, so when I speak about socialism, I use it in the Marxist tradition, um, by which I mean a global society which is egalitarian and whose uh, economic system is socially owned and integrated globally according to a plan, um, which is uh, the result of democratic decision-making throughout society. And that democracy element is really important. And so ultimately, um, a communist society would be one in which production was so developed that society, um, that each member of society would be entitled to take what they needed from the common goods, irrespective of their productivity or strengths and weaknesses. And in that kind of society, um, you wouldn't have wages. Um, But of course, we can't. Um, just move straight from capitalist inequality to that kind of society of abundance. Um, So socialism is the period of the transition to communism where society is being reorganized and productivity increased uh, to make that egalitarian society possible. Um, And so, um, yeah, there would still be pay, um, but and there would be pay differentiation based on yeah like specialization and different skills but the very important piece of that would be that the means of production would be socially owned and so therefore the only source of income would be work so you couldn't make money from capital gains or just from owning businesses um and just you know sitting on a lot of money that's by reinvesting it and making more money i think that's the key thing um, and out of that total kind of social product that's kind of collectively and socially owned, an increasing proportion would obviously be invested into provision of social services and health and education and housing and so on. Um, so, I yeah, I mean, I hope that's helpful. And I think when you're talking about um, kind of trade union politics, um, like what you were saying then I think we have to bring it back to the idea of actually moving beyond the capitalist system. Um, Because 
what trade union politics does um, is that it fights to increase workers share of production um, it fights for higher mm-hmm. wages and in doing so to you know eat into a portion of capitalist profits and bring that back into wages um, but capitalism is yeah so that that's the very core of capitalism is that it's a system that generates profits um, and right. the reason that it's a fundamentally unjust system is that um, once bosses have invested their money into materials, machinery, and manpower. They then sell the resulting products for more than they laid out in the first place. So workers are always getting ripped off. Um, and the understanding that is at the very core of Marxism and socialism, um, is that no matter how hard workers fight to increase their wages, as long as they're fighting within the existing system, they're just fighting the worst effects of the system. And it's like going to be a perpetual guerrilla war that never ends. So I think we also have to talk about, you know, in addition to fighting those kind of economic struggles uh, to improve pay and wages and working conditions, um, we also actually have to talk about the political struggle um, for fighting for a new kind of social system altogether, um, which would require, you know, kind of destroying um, the state as it currently exists and creating a new kind of democracy and a new kind of system of allocating the wealth across society. Interesting. So do you think that type of change could happen on a, on a gradual basis? Or do you think it really is going to take like a full fundamental shift in uh, how people vote? Uh, or how people uh, see themselves fitting into the country? Um, So I think it's going to, yeah, I think it would take a a completely different form of democracy. Um, So, and I think this is one of the big debates within socialism today. Obviously, the concept, the idea of socialism is becoming more and more popular, but people mean different things when they talk about socialism. So a lot of people think socialism is just getting a government elected, which will kind of alleviate the worst effects of inequality, but invest in social services and create a stronger social safety net. Um, And in a sense, you know, act out of a sense of moral conscience in trying to tackle social problems like climate change and poverty and so on. Um, But I think so that kind of strategy rests on three points. Um, First, the idea that what's wrong with capitalism is how it distributes the wealth that it creates. Secondly, that political reforms can ensure redistribution of wealth enough that it transforms society um, and, you know, kind of ends injustice or inequality, or at least alleviates it to a socially acceptable point. And thirdly, that, you know, through, through parliamentary democracy or um, electoral democracy, all these things can be brought about kind of, yeah, over time and without overthrowing the existing state structure. Um, but I, I would say that those ideas are flawed because in capitalism, unequal distribution is a result of unequal and private ownership as the main means of creating wealth. And so as long as that remains, um, attempts to share out that wealth 
will always be sabotaged, you know, by layoffs and pay cuts and shutdowns of whole industries and reinvestment of capital somewhere else. Um, Because there's, I think, there's a fundamental conflict at the heart of capitalist society, um, a, a class conflict between those people who have to sell their labor and work to survive and those people who make money off profits. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, to achieve socialism, you would have to take away society's wealth from the ownership and control of the minority of people um, who control the means of production and therefore to break up the military and the bureaucracy of the state um, and through the collective action of millions of people who have a stake in a new kind of system that would have to be based on um, real representative democracy. Um, So, you know, assemblies of delegates elected in workplaces and local areas, obviously, you know, a kind of nesting system of local areas feeding up into states and regions and so on. But the important thing is that those delegates would be um, subject to recall um, if their actions were kind of unacceptable to the people who elected them and therefore it would be a genuine democracy that was based on the will of the people um, and not just kind of signing over administration of the state um, to an actually unaccountable body of bureaucrats and politicians. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that was kind of the big thing that Trump ran on in 16 was uh quote, draining the swamp, Uh, because it really is. I mean, what you said is essentially like on paper what we have here in America. It's, you know, the representative that there's a reason they have to run every two years and it creates a shorter leash for them. But we've gotten to the point politically where it's just accepted that, you know, with Citizens United, as soon as you get elected to Congress, you are now part of the, the political bureaucracy like you're you have to take money from these different lobbyists otherwise the the democratic party which is out which is mainly just a way for them to make money is going to funnel money into someone else and try and get you unelected so i guess where this kind of starts in my mind and i'm curious if you agree is campaign finance reform um changing how people can give money to candidates and changing how people how the democratic party itself can give money to candidates to like so that people that better represent their own districts actually have more of a voice as opposed to like someone like aoc uh who's in queens so i i don't vote for her but she kind of ran on a more populist left-wing movement and now she's just kind of like you'll notice she doesn't really get in public fights with Nancy Pelosi or the established Democrats anymore. And it's really just because she's figured out like, oh, wait, I get more power. I get more personal say if I kind of toe the party line a little bit more. Um, so I don't, I don't, does that start with campaign finance reform or does it, where does that start in like a political level for you? Um, I mean, I uh, support campaign finance reform, reform. I think it's a progressive thing that should be pursued um, within, you know, the avenues that we have to pursue that now. Um, but I would start actually in terms of building up that kind of um, grassroots power and democracy that could be the basis of a new 
um, form of state and a new uh, form of power in society. I think that has to start from a different conception of democracy, which is about actually participation rather than representation. Um, And the fact that actually, you know, everyone in their workplaces and their communities actually organizes themselves um, and, uh, you know, assesses the community's needs and draws up plans and budgets for how to fulfill those um, and then it elects delegates upwards to discuss those things um, you know at a, at a higher level and so on but then that the the community is always connected directly um, to the mechanisms of decision making and then it, it you know actually represents uh, working class interests and so I would say that it has to start from yeah organization um, again from the bottom up in the same way okay yeah I think that I think that makes sense I think um, yeah there's there's other I I actually now that you say that I, I agree with what you're saying I think I like the campaign finance reform would come with the organization that you're talking about correct um, yeah absolutely of course yeah because okay. because those organizations would create their own rules about how people should be elected and um, fundamental to that would be things like yeah um immediate recall for people um also making sure the representatives don't earn more than you know the average wages of um, the people that they represent to kind of prevent careerism and a differentiation of a political class and things like that um and yeah i mean i okay. think i think the, the the concept of democracy is something that uh, of course, we're taught that what we have is democracy, um, but in in many ways, I think the kind of representative electoral democracy that we have is a structure that serves to actually occlude um, the real uh, form of state power and whose interests that it serves. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Well, so I also um, wanted to change wanted to change topics a little bit here and get into um, kind of the the common thing that you hear at least from the right in the United States, and and I do want to get into like where England is with all of this kind of stuff as well, um, eventually. But it's the thing that you hear here is that socialism stifles innovation. Like that's kind of the the big pushback. Like capitalism creates innovation, socialism stifles it. If that happens, like yeah, it'll be great for you know ten years where the government's given all of us money, but then all of a sudden, like you know, nobody's gonna want to work and nobody's gonna want to come up with new ideas. Like I I personally don't believe that, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on on kind of a rebuttal for that ideology. Um. Well, I guess I would say that that kind of um, idea is based on um, just transplanting a new kind of wage structure and structure of ownership um, onto 
the kind of uh, understanding of work and ourselves um, that we have today and um, um, Marxism has this idea of uh, alienation that people are actually removed from the things they produce with their own labor and therefore they have no kind of personal interest or incentive um, to perform that work um, but hmm. in a socialist society labor is freed um, people who work are actually the masters of that process because through collective and voluntary organizations they will choose the priorities they want for dividing up all the things that they produce and they'll decide democratically on which material needs to be f fulfilled and how much of these to postpone or trade off against you know more leisure time or different um priorities and um therefore uh, people's attitudes to work will be completely altered fundamentally um, people will find pleasure and fulfillment in work and um, the kind of aggressive com competitive spirit and alienation um, that we have within capitalism surrounding work will uh, wither away and um, of course, an absolutely fundamental aspect of that is is democracy within socialism, um, as we've already right. discussed. Um, but I also think that the idea that like capitalism drives innovation is, in some ways, a misconception because if you look at um, the biggest uh, kind of transformative inventions that we've had, technological advances that we've had um, in the last decades, for example, the internet, um, that was invented because of state funding, which actually allowed people to work for a long and sustained time on things that weren't oriented towards producing an immediate profit or um, yeah. yeah, an immediate outcome. It actually allowed people to research and experiment um, without necessarily an end goal in mind um, and to then create something um, that was genuinely transformative. And if you think about, you know, scientists, researchers, people who are at the forefront of that kind of work in society, um, they're not motivated by, you know, making more profits for the company that they work for, the organization they work for in competition with other companies. Um, they're motivated by, uh, you know, satisfaction in the work that they do. And of course, you know, their own material circumstances and having a job that pays well and so on. Um, but as we've discussed, you know, in socialism, the reorganization of production um, will first of all, make people more invested in that kind of work, and secondly, um, you know, over time, provide them with a much higher uh, f level of uh, material comfort and subsistence anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with that on um, at least some level, because it's, you know, we've, we like to say, especially with namely the big tech companies in the United States, like, oh, they're competing with each other. Apple's competing with Samsung. Google's competing with uh, Facebook for ad revenue, like all of this other stuff. But really what seems to be happening is that they're competing with each other just enough that we continue to buy 
the next thing. But like you said, with, you know, academics creating the internet, there's really no, there's no reason that they should go and try to come up with this brand new thing, because if it doesn't work, well, then there, there's no guaranteed profit there. Um, where like Apple knows if they create a new set of AirPods, which are just even the slightest bit better, they're going to make a lot of profit off of it. Is that kind of in line with what you're saying? Yeah, it is. And also, I would add to that that we shouldn't also uh, forget the capacity of capitalist uh, competition and, you know, based on profit to actually hold back um, the uh, use of technologies that are already developed for socially progressive purposes. Um, For example, on... uh, climate change. I mean, we have the technology um, to turn every single car in the world into an electric car. Um, We have advanced technologies in solar and um, in clean production processes um, which exist, um, which could completely transform um, the way that we use natural resources. Um, But of course, without a way to actually um, rationally plan that transition across all of society um, when you leave individual companies um, to compete with each other um, over profit, then you you don't have an incentive to have that long-term transition. Um, you don't have any really authority that can coerce them into doing that. And in fact, a lot of these technologies are deliberately held back so as not to undermine their uh, immediate profit model. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that definitely happens on some levels and and in some, I think you can even break it up by by industry. Um, Like, for instance, uh, phones are are relatively the same and computer chipsets are the same. Meanwhile, like the battery industry, which goes into what you're saying about green, green power, there's really no monopoly on it. Like uh, there's a ton of different companies that create batteries. Uh, Elon Musk is now trying to create batteries. And then there was a new technology that just came out, which they're starting to test where this company figured out that if you take nuclear waste and then compress it down into a diamond, you could store years, like literally tens of thousands of years of power in that battery like they were talking about powering a satellite for 13,000 years because of this like crazy innovation but again this is like this is a company that had like a crazy idea it got a little bit of funding and was like all right well it's probably not going to turn into anything but here's what here's what we're going to try and do so that freedom to experiment i think is what you're you're talking about right so yeah, I think that is right, but it's also about the um, need to integrate these technologies across society in a, a social plan. So if we just look at kind of each privately owned industry in separation, so so for example, let's think talk about climate change. If we look at solar wind cars, 
buses, you know, energy generation, if we look at all those things as discrete puzzles, which, you know, if we just throw enough sort of state cash and subsidies at them, um, we can encourage them to develop green technologies and a, a green economy will sort of emerge from that. Um, but actually, all those technologies can only realize their full potential as part of integrated systems. Um, so the electricity sources need to be coordinated, not just with each other, but with gas and heat and transport systems. And if all of these are owned by private companies, then again, profits will be put before climate and social justice kind of imperatives. Right. Um, and, and so what you need is actually, um, yeah, collective ownership of all those things so that they can be treated together um, with the goal of actually enacting that transition for social good. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see how that that could be uh, put together and and lead to that. So I guess on the like staying on the technology portion of this, like, do you think overall gains in technology ultimately lead to a more socialist society? Or because I mean, like, the internet has kind of done that. It's kind of uh, it's on the one hand it's it's divided the world into i think two separate parties where people who are hearing that immigrants are the problem on the internet are thinking immigrants are the problem and then there's also now this you know rise of a more left-wing uh movement with bernie sanders and aoc and like all those other people do you think ultimately technology will get to the point where we have to move in a socialist direction because robots are taking our jobs or, you know, the, the common trope there? Or do you think that um, technology doesn't inherently do anything like that? It's really going to take grassroots organizers to, to push this type of thing through. Um, well, I think what technology does is it increases um, productivity in the economy and right. therefore it, it, it increases the absolute amount of wealth uh, and uh, stuff that we can make um, at lower lower cost. Um, right. And, you know, I think in that sense, of course, we can acknowledge that capitalism as a system is more productive and therefore more egalitarian than what came before, um, i.e. feudalism, um, because right. capitalism <laughs> is capable and relies on constant growth um, and because um, a profit-based model also requires consumers to absorb those products that are created for a profit, it's also led to an absolute increase in wealth um, across all classes and in that sense, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, yep. And so socialism would certainly use that technological basis that's been created by capitalism, um, but what's uh, but technology on its own doesn't lead to a um, more progressive redistribution of that wealth because that's down to ownership. Um, it's down okay. to who controls that production, um, how do they distribute it, and in whose interests. Um, and therefore, um, yeah technology on its own um, doesn't lead to a new social model. Um, it leads to the potential um, for more productivity and therefore more free time. Um, if we had a 
a state which was actually concerned with reallocating those gains in productivity evenly across society so that people could work less, um, that would be possible. But at the moment, those gains in productivity are just being absorbed into bigger profits. Right. So do you think that there's kind of a, like referring back to your, you know, uh, capitalism was built on feudalism, uh, based on the productivity comment. Do you think that there is kind of a point where a country based on their growth mechanisms has to be capitalist to kind of create that base of wealth that then socialism can, can kind of, uh, live off of, for instance, like India is much further behind in their industrial revolution than the United States or England or most of the Western world is. Do you like, in your opinion, should, should everyone be in part of more of a socialist society or do societies get to the point where suddenly socialism becomes viable? Because I mean, the, the other common trope is, uh, that communism has failed every time that it's been tried in like Venezuela and Russia and like all these other uh, nation states. However, like they really didn't have kind of the basis that we do now in terms of economic power and like tech technological power. Um, so does it depend country by country or do you really think everybody should be kind of moving towards this direction currently? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and actually what you're getting at is, um, yeah, like a very fundamental debate within socialism, whether you have to go through all the stages of kind of feudalism, capitalism to get to socialism, um, or whether you can, in a sense, skip a stage and, um, you know, go straight for the kind of socialist revolution. I mean, I think that um, the emergence of capitalism um, was clearly, um, in some sense, in the most developed economies, a spontaneous process. I, uh, I, the development of um, capitalist methods of production um, then was um, the the political structure of feudalism was actually holding back the productivity of the economy um, and right. then uh, revolutions occurred in order to bring uh, the most productive uh, um, in order to bring the structure of society into line with uh, the um, the best mode of production. So I think um, this is where we have to remember the um, the precondition for socialism is an integrated world economy um, where uh, the economy can be planned internationally. And of course, we already live yep. in an integrated world economy um, right. where there's transnational production lines and huge um, division of labor internationally. Um, and therefore, um, if a country is less uh, economically developed, of course, it means that it would be able to, uh, at the moment, um, sustain potentially a lower degree of production. Um, and therefore, um, you know, uh, it wouldn't be able to uh, 
effect the transition towards socialism um, as smoothly or immediately. But then um, no country can affect the transition towards socialism on its own. Um, The entire... uh, and the entire conception of socialism is that um, ultimately um, the socialism is an international, as a global uh, political economic system, um, and therefore it relies on spreading uh, socialism and being able to um, develop, you know, certain the economy in certain parts of the world um, as part of that uh, to be able to actually um, take advantage of those international divisions of labor in a rational way Um, and therefore I think we should always um, that that kind of technological basis for socialism already exists across the world Um, it's just that um, the political and governance structures are holding it back uh, from its true potential and so I think we should always raise a socialist program in every struggle um, regardless of the level of economic development in the country on the basis that um, the program is an international one okay but I think cool. it's a yeah, very interesting no, I question think... I mean this is a very this this actually what you're getting at the kind of is the fundamental um, the core of the debate between Stalinism and um, Trotskyism or yeah, a democratic, more democratic form of Marxism. Um, so you know, there's definitely a lot to get into there. And I mean, you mentioned the example of Russia and its uh, lack of economic development, which ultimately um, hampered um, its or left it unable uh, to develop its production um okay never mind scratch this bit sorry <laughs> no that's all right i'm getting no i getting was gonna... tired. <laughs> it's all it's all good these are i mean this i i appreciate the the kind of carefulness that you are taking towards this approach because i i understand that this is like kind of a it's it's an incredibly complicated topic so i appreciate you talking with me about it and it is it's tougher over the phone like we're doing so so don't get me wrong like i i appreciate that uh like how much effort and work this is but i think um i think honestly what you said uh has makes a lot of sense especially for the time period that we're in where we are seeing such like uh incredible economic um disparities between the different classes i think a lot of people are starting to think like is this the time to uh maybe install another system and so um i really appreciate you talking with me is there like anything you want to plug like you want do you have like uh pieces or uh you know work that that you want people to kind of uh look for uh to kind of help with this type of thinking or anything that you recommend to them if they want to learn more about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so um, I'm part of a socialist organization um, in Britain called Red Flag. Um, that is, you can find us at redflagonline.org. Um, we are also part of an international um, organization called the League for a Fifth International. Um, and yeah, we publish loads of articles analyzing um, 
developments across the world from a socialist perspective and it also has loads of resources for learning about socialism um, and explaining probably much better than I have some of the concepts I've tried to bring into the conversation uh, today. So I would really recommend you have a look at those, but also just read widely, follow every, you know, left-wing and socialist publication that you can um, and take it upon yourself to question those ideas. Go back to the classics as well. I mean, reading Marx's Capital um, was an absolutely life-changing experience for me um, and so I mean if you really want to I think understand the core of exploitation and inequality and the way the capitalist system works um, I think you really have to read that text um, so but obviously I know it's a it's an intimidating one so there's loads of resources right. out there that explain some of those <laughs> core concepts in an, in a more accessible way as well yeah awesome um, well thank you again for for doing this we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk soon all right thanks so much for having me thanks.